The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you to turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4, as we continue in this very important epistle of the Apostle Paul. Chapter 4, I'll begin reading in verse 29. Uh, but first, I wanted to mention that um, after last Sunday's Super Bowl, I learned in Monday's media that Joe Flacco, the game-winning, the game-winning quarterback and MVP, let out a uh, profane slur that was caught live on CBS TV by a video camera. Living in an increasingly vulgar culture, it becomes harder and harder to shield oneself from profanity, foul language, and lewd behavior. As I look into this text, I believe that the apostle is less concerned with what the pagans are doing and more concerned with the speech and actions of believers. And perhaps even more importantly, it is the condition of the heart of one who would profess to follow Christ. I want to encourage us to understand what Paul has to say to us, that we might grow on to maturity into the very likeness of Christ. I begin reading in Ephesians 4, verse 29. He says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is God's holy and inspired word. Our Father, we would ask once again that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Last year, when we moved into our new house, we had a professional inspector guide us through the house to inspect all the appliances and to uh, identify any problems. 
And uh, we found evidence of calcium deposits in, in hard water, as uh, was evident on the, shower he- the showers and on the sinks. And uh, we were informed, from, informed by our inspector uh, that the impurities in the water would cause wear and tear on the plumbing system and on the appliances over time. So at his recommendation, we decided to purchase a water softener. And when you install a water softener, what it does is it, as the water comes into the house from the street, the, the brine and salt system extracts the minerals, the metals out of the water uh, so that the water is purified as it goes into the house throughout your plumbing system. Now, when we moved into our house, the, the former owners had also, they had left behind for us the refrigerator. And we were having some problems with the refrigerator until we learned that the filter needed to be replaced. So we, even though we didn't really need the filter as much because of the, the water softener, we did replace the filter for the drinking water to flow properly. That illustration applies to our text. Because as Paul is talking here at first primarily about, about the tongue, he, he's speaking about the impurities of that which comes out of our mouths. But Paul here, by way of illusion, is also appealing to what Jesus makes very explicit. That it is from the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. People may try to tame their tongue. They, they might just try to put a filter on their mouth to keep impurities from flowing out of it. But we know here from God's word that controlling the tongue is not enough. We have to get to the heart. Just as if putting a water filter on a refrigerator would only impact that drinking water. We had to go to the source of the whole house to capture that water as it comes into the house and purify it first in order for us to have pure and clean water flowing throughout the entire house. Well, you and I need more than just a filter. You and I need a new heart, one purified by the work of Christ. We need the healing balm of the gospel applied to us by the Holy Spirit that we might walk in love, that we might speak what is pleasing to God and edifying to other people. Paul opens in verse 29, literally saying, let no evil come out of our mouths, but only that which is edifying, that which builds up others. The word here for corrupting or translated elsewhere as worthless was a word to describe rotten trees or rotten fruit. When my children or I are neglectful in consuming our bananas in a timely fashion, They go bad. They become rotten, and they're no longer fit for eating as a snack or to cut up and put on our cereal. But thankfully, I have a resourceful wife who can take those overripe bananas and make banana bread with them. Well, in a way, Paul is challenging us to turn our rotten tongues and make them a blessing. We acknowledge here that the tongue is a powerful organ, both physically and literally. The tongue is the second 
strongest muscle in the body after the heart. It can do much good. It can also cause great harm. It can wreak havoc, tear down people, badmouth them. I heard recently a sad experience of a corporate vice president entering into a, a local office here in Lancaster, inspecting and barking orders at the staff and singling out a woman on staff in front of the entire office, belittled her, telling her that there was nothing between her ears. We may have heard as children the old adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is a bold-faced lie. Words hurt. Words cut. And people can carry all kinds of baggage from the painful words they receive from parents, coaches, teachers, and other influential people. In contrast to this type of language, Paul encourages us to speak what is good, to build others up, to edify, to strengthen At home, my children will play with dominoes, and they'll kind of set up the dominoes. You set them up, and then you tear them all down again. And it's very frustrating for a child when another one comes along and kicks it over before he's done setting it all up. And it's a blessing when we build up rather than tear down. In our household, we have a tradition that on each birthday, we take time around the dinner table for everyone to tell the birthday boy or girl what we like about them, what we appreciate about him or her, to bless them, to encourage them, to remind them how precious, how special they are in God's sight and in our sight. Paul says here that when you do so, you are giving grace to those who hear. Our words can be a precious gift. It can be a cell that heals the wounds of having been cut by the words of others. The tongue can be a weapon. It can also be be molded into a plowshare to bring forth a fruit of righteousness, an instrument of healing to a heart in need. I was talking with Michael Plouts a while back who was informing me about the home that they had built years ago in the state of New York. And as they were building this home, they had to dig a well. And as the drillers came to dig the well, they were having problems as they went down deep underground, getting enough pressure and flow uh, of the water. And so they had to use a a fracking technique that, I guess, increased the water flow back up that, that well pipe. But not until the work was complete and the Plautzes were living in their home did they realize that fracking had allowed salt to get in. And salt was coming up through their water, contaminating their drinking water and their, uh, the water for use in their appliances. And so they had to install another system, some kind of reverse osmosis system to get that salt out to make the water fit for drinking and for usage in their home. Water is a source of life. But when it is contaminated with salt, it is not good for us. This reminds us the source of what comes out of our mouth comes ultimately from 
the heart. The scriptures describe our heart like a deep well from which is drawn the attitudes and desires of the person. The Plautzes and Michael was telling me that in, in hindsight, had they known they had this problem with the well, they probably would have actually dug another well. Well, the good news for us in Christ is that we have a God who breaks our own broken cisterns. He is a God who gives us a new well. He provides us an eternal fountain of living water, a source of eternal life. Perhaps like the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, you might be asking, where do I get this living water? Well, Paul gives our first indicator here in verse 30, when he speaks of the Holy Spirit who has sealed us for the day of redemption. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity, that marks you and I as a new creature. It's by the Holy Spirit that we are born again. It's the Holy Spirit that applies the healing balm of the gospel to transform a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. It's the Spirit's surgical power that that cauterizes the gushing wounds of our sin-sick hearts to stop them from leaking, to heal it from festering. The Spirit is the antibiotic that kills the infection of sin. Perhaps like me, you've been battling flu and cold-like symptoms for me going on five weeks now of getting better and then relapsing and getting better and then relapsing with various signs and symptoms. And part of that's because I neglect to take care of my body. I don't rest the way I need. My body needs rest and healing. But I'll tell you what, my heart needs more rest. My heart is in greater need of healing than my body. Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. My wife can be grieved with me when I don't take care of of my body, and get the rest that I need to keep from illness. A parent grieves. Parents grieve when their children are reckless and rebellious and, and fail to heed godly wisdom and counsel. And so the Holy Spirit is grieved when we ignore his warnings, when we try to silence our stricken consciences. You see, the Spirit is with us. The Spirit indwells with us. We are, those of us who are in Christ, are a temple of the Holy Spirit. He has sealed us by his authority. He gives us the authenticity that we are children of God. And it's the Holy Spirit by which we receive a regular inspection to make us ready for the day of redemption. A member in our church was telling me recently that his employer was audited by the government for safety and compliance purposes. And uh, this employer underwent a grueling and scary audit uh, where they were being threatened, where they were being subject to arbitrary rules and uh, a, a lack of clear guidance on what was to be expected of them. There were 
political and self-centered motivations, and even this employer got caught between federal and state government authorities having a turf war over the application of the rules applied. And this employer needed this approval. They needed a number from the federal government in order to get reimbursements for the services they provided to their clients. There were heavy financial implications at stake. You and I are inspected by a powerful and omniscient authority who will uncover all of our secrets, but also a God who is a loving Father to discipline us in order to bring forth a proper fruit that is pleasing to him. And we can rest assured that our ultimate stamp of approval comes not from us, not from our performance, not from our perfect obedience, but our approval ultimately comes from Jesus Christ. And what we have to offer God is our faith, is our trust, is our appropriating God's grace to allow his work in our life to bring forth the fruit that he desires. But under that effort, Paul here in verse 31 proceeds to list six vices, the vices that are killers to the heart of a person. The ESV translates these terms bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. Bitterness is that cynical attitude towards God in response to the pain, suffering, and disappointments of life. All of us suffer. And all of us have a choice whether to be bitter or to be pleasant. We must choose where we will dig our own well. Like Naomi, returning to Bethlehem from Moab, we have a choice. Whether to allow ourselves to become bitter or to entrust ourselves to a God who is faithful and good. Wrath and anger are two different perspectives on the problem of anger and rage. The first one speaks of that kind of passionate rage that that rails against other people in attack mode. But the second is more of a sullen hostility, more of a passive withdrawal. Both are destructive. Both are aimed to punish, to manipulate, and to tear down other people. Clamor is a quarrel. To pick a fight with others, it can amount to shouting and screaming at one another. And then there's slander, the Greek term blasphemia, in which one attacks the reputation of another. This is character assassination. And lastly, Paul mentions malice, ill will directed at another person. All of these are festering heart matters that boil over and spew forth with hostilities, causing much harm and pain. I've known people who have had a reflux problem in their stomach, where the stomach acid comes back up the esophagus, and it can give one the the sensation of, of heart problems. And sometimes people actually go and have their hearts checked for fear of 
a very serious condition and to be relieved that, though still significant, their medical condition is not quite as serious as they thought it was. I believe that our hearts have reflux. Our hearts, as poisonous attitudes are festering inside, when tempted, when tried by stressful situations, our hearts regurgitate. And those poisonous attitudes and thoughts and desires come spewing forth out of our mouths, causing damage and leaving a mess. Friends, we need a new heart. We need a new identity in Christ. And the very foundation, if we return to chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, we find the very foundation of everything God has provided for us in Christ. Having foreknown us and loved us and chosen us and adopted us and secured us through Christ by the Holy Spirit. And here we apply it. As we come to verse 32, Paul, in contrast to the vices just listed, gives us the godly virtues that should characterize the person who is walking with Christ. The first he mentions is kindness. In contrast to malice, this is the intention to do other people good, to put off self-centeredness, to serve others, to bless them and do them good. The second is a little stronger, tender-hearted, which speaks of compassion. This is showing empathy to those who are weak, needy, and even unpleasant. The most common description applied to Jesus in the way he interacted with people was the term compassion. Was Jesus was moved in pity towards the masses and individuals who came to him for help and healing, rather than to be irritated with people. Rather than merely dismiss people, Jesus moved towards people, having compassion upon their bondage, seeing that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And thirdly, Paul gives us the strongest of the exhortations, to forgive one another. This means canceling debts. And he means more than merely financial debts. He's speaking of social, emotional, and relational debtedness. A person wrongs you, speaks ill of you, attacks and harms your reputation, maybe humiliates you in front of other people. In your flesh, you are tempted to retreat or perhaps retaliate. Paul here urges us to do neither. Rather to move towards such a person with kindness, with compassion. Now this may require confrontation. But regardless of the other person's response, we who are in Christ must be prepared to forgive, in hopes that there might be true repentance and reconciliation. How? How, you might ask, how might I forgive somebody who has grievously sinned against me? Perhaps you have suffered severe consequences from somebody else's sin. How can you apply this to your particular 
situation. In our flesh, we're tempted to hold it over them. It is, how do we let this go? How, how do we let this person off? But the more you hold on to it, you realize that it's a burden that neither you nor the offender are able to bear. And what you and I lack in our shallow human resources, God has provided as we draw from the infinite depths of his wells of mercy. Paul says here to forgive as God in Christ forgave you. As Jesus hung in agony on the cross, as he bore the weight of my sin, of your sin, as he was crushed by the infinite weight of God's holy wrath on sin, it was at that moment that Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them. Believer in Christ, your flesh has been crucified with Christ. Our hearts have been pierced with the sword of truth. And you and I are being transformed to bear his likeness and given much power to forgive others. Now, I fully admit that forgiving other people is hard work. People don't like to be confronted And even people who are willing to be confronted are often reluctant to confess their sin. People would rather excuse their sin. They want to confess part of it and leave the other part out. And it oftentimes requires long-suffering, patience, and reliance upon God's kindness. God's compassion. When our own well runs dry, we have to go to the eternal well. And I remind you, as Jesus indicates by some of his parables, that oftentimes our ability to forgive another sinner is an indicator of how much we grasp the gospel or how much the gospel has a grasp on us. An unwillingness to forgive can be a sign that one misunderstands the depths of one's own sin against holy God. It is a denial of the gospel to demand payment, to hold another person's debt over them. When you reckon the debt that was paid for you, when you realize the forgiveness and the freedom that Jesus has provided for you. Jesus spoke about this in the parable of the two servants, the one who had an unbelievably large debt that was canceled by the master, but then turned and strangled his fellow servant who owed him just a few weeks' wages. Jesus confronted Simon the Pharisee challenging him to consider which of the two debtors loved the master more. Well, the one who had a greater debt canceled. It's only as we begin to understand the magnitude 
first the depths of our sin, but also the magnitude of God's grace to forgive us and set us free, that we can begin to appropriate that grace to be set free and have power to show kindness, to demonstrate compassion and offer someone the gift of forgiveness. Well, after this long chain of applications and exhortations and challenges, we come to chapter 5 and verse 1 with a kind of a summary couple of statements that help pull all things together. Paul exhorts us to be imitators of God. Children love to imitate. People they admire. My sons love to imitate superheroes. Little boys love to imitate pro-professional athletes. One of my sons will put on a pair of my dress shoes and go clopping around the house like daddy. Our daughter years ago got into my wife's makeup and had a little party on her face and toting around mommy's purse. Children want to try on what big people do. We're called to be imitators. And children will be like their parents for good or ill. Learning their good habits and learning their bad ones. Copying the good things they say and sadly copying the negative and hateful things that they say. Friends, you and I have a father who only says what is good. Who only does what is good. Everything that our Father does is a blessing and is good and is for us and builds us up and encourages us and strengthens us. Do you want to be like your Father? Do you want to know more about your Father? Do you want to spend time with your Father? Because as you spend time with Him, as you learn Him and know Him, you will become more like Him. I like what Psalm 145 says, that that God is faithful in all of his words and kind in all of his works. Do you want to be known as a person who is faithful in all of your words and kind in all of your works? Imitate God. Be like your father. Orphans who lack security who lack a model, who don't have that kind of parental relationship, don't have a clear guide on how to behave other than what they observe from the workers at the orphanage or perhaps fellow orphans. But when an orphan is adopted, he or she has a new relationship with a parent who has initiated that relationship in love, sometimes at great cost and great sacrifice to the parents Friends, you and I were orphans. You and I were lost. You and I were left out. You and I were unloved. And we have a God and Father who has pursued us, who has purchased us, who has brought us into his family at great cost to himself. And it's as we grow in awareness of that great cost, as we consider the magnitude of Christ's sacrifice for us, we learn to shed our orphan ways. And we learn the childlike ways of being a true son or daughter of the living God. Verse 2 says to walk 
in love. In the likeness of him who lived and walked amongst us. Friends, you and I have an elder brother. One who came after us. Who lifted us up out of the muck and the mire. Who cleaned us off. Who restored us to the Father. He gave himself up for us. He laid aside his status. He put away his comfort and his glory. He bore our burdens, carried our cross, endured our punishment, died our death. Because he loved us. But notice what Paul says in verse 2, that it wasn't just his love for us. It was Jesus' desire to please the Father that drove him. Christ desired to please the Father more than any other thing. It says in our text, it says that he gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There's, There's two double emphases of words here. One that's emphasizing the offering and sacrifice of Jesus. The other emphasizing, it's the sweet-smelling, pleasing aroma. And the language here is Paul's referring back to the Old Testament sacrifices. Where the priest would offer up a burnt offering, a whole burnt offering, completely dedicated to God. And it went up as a pleasing aroma. To the Lord. Jesus Christ offered himself, yes, for us, but ultimately to please his God and Father who sought a way to reconcile himself to us and us to him. And the Father is pleased. He is completely satisfied by the one final sacrifice for sin by which he might welcome home the lost children. The Son's desire His joy was to please the Father, to secure our redemption, that we might receive the glorious inheritance as sons and daughters. As I have reflected upon the vices listed in these prior verses, and as I look ahead in chapter 5 at the dreadful things mentioned, it reminds me of my former way of life before I met Christ. It describes... My, my life and my attitude and my inner world, at least as far back as junior high, when my friends and I, I would say, were characterized by foul language and crude humor and sinful attitudes towards females, towards authority, towards whatever in our rebellious ways. My friends and I were, were master cut-down artists giving praise to whoever was the most quick-witted to cut down others. And I remember in those months leading up to my conversion how I felt filthy. I felt dirty and filthy and impure and polluted until I met Christ. I could no longer live with myself and was ready to abandon it all to give myself to Christ as I heard the gospel. And when I met Christ, the the light dawned in my life. The light shone in my heart of darkness, and my heart finally received the bath is so desperately needed. Everything changed. My speech, my attitudes, my desires. And as I changed, some of my friends became uncomfortable, and I either lost those friends or other friends came to Christ. 
And a group of us desired to do what Paul says here, to walk in love, to live a life pleasing to God, and we labored in that. I'd like to say that I never struggled again with my speech, my anger. I would love to say that I have never said a harsh word or had a profane thought or something spew from my mouth, but that would be the furthest thing from the truth. I, like you, continue to struggle with a tongue that is loose, that's connected to a heart that needs regular cleansing and purification by the Holy Spirit. Those seeds of sin, God is still pruning and uprooting and delivering me. And I'm encouraged by what Paul says because I know it's by God's power, it's by God's grace and strength that I can grow in the likeness of Christ. Not just by trying harder or performing better, but by living in the fellowship with my God. By being in community with my brothers and sisters in Christ. To try to apply these things in difficult situations, to learn how to appropriate God's grace. And so, my prayer for myself, my prayer for you, is that, that we would grow in awareness of the foulness of our own hearts of the weakness of our flesh, of the looseness of our tongues, to be aware of the way that we grieve the Holy Spirit, but also to be encouraged, to be strengthened by the presence of the Spirit that we might mature, that we might appropriate God's grace, that we might learn to please God, to imitate Him, to grow in Christ's likeness, to serve and edify one another, and to live a life that is truly a sweet-smelling aroma a fragrant offering to God as we live in Christ, that he might be glorified in us and through us. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that you are working in us to bring forth much fruit, to prepare us for the day of redemption. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here that we would take to heart this powerful teaching from Ephesians that you would guard people from despair, that you would encourage the saints to trust you, to delight in you, uh, to grow on to maturity, knowing that you will carry out to completion that great work you have begun in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.